During the course of the film, I had no idea I was sick and I was operating fine. So if I can operate, you know, and act with stage four cancer in Minneapolis, I can do it in New York or Los Angeles. It's not that big a deal for me, fortunately. Wow. wow. I'm the exception, not the rule. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it is always a thrill to talk with you. Tell me, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? That was actor, director, writer, human being extraordinaire, Eric Jensen. Eric has been on the show before. You spoke with him and his artistic collaborator and wife, Jessica Blank, back in 2020. Why did you want to talk with him again now? Well, yes, you know, I realize this is the second show I've done this year that's like a returning guest. It's wild that we've been doing this long enough that like people hit new phases of their lives and Mm. careers and they can come back. And uh, I I don't know, that's kind of a wonderful feeling. But as listeners may remember, those of you who were listening way back in 2020, Jessica and I actually grew up together and Eric and I have been friends through her for a long time. So they contacted me a few weeks ago to let me know that Eric has cancer and that he was really interested in talking about how he's maintaining a creative life. You know, he's, he's making a movie right now and all sorts of other things in the midst of you know, this very serious illness. And also he really wanted to talk because the SAG strike was just wrapping up about health insurance and about the financial situation of being a, you know, freelance middle-class artist in America and what that is really like in a really serious and detailed way. And, you know, I just felt like that's really important stuff that we hadn't fully covered on this show. And if he wanted to talk about it, I wanted to give him a, a place to do it. Yeah, amazing. I cannot wait to hear that conversation. Is there something extra for Slate Plus members this week? Yes. We talk a little bit about this in the body of the interview, but we sort of go long on the idea of choosing which role you're going to play in a collaboration, which you're playing many hats and the temptation to cheat, to let yourself off the hook. You know, if you're an actor and a writer, do you rewrite it to give yourself an easier job as an actor and, Mm. and just what it's like to wear all those hats at once? What a treat. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, it's really easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you get to hear extra segments on this show and others like the Culture Gab Fest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Slow Burn and Decodering. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Okay, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Eric Jensen. Eric Jensen, welcome back to Working. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. It's nice to be still working. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I just realized that the last time we talked was like right after 
the pandemic had started and your show Coal Country, a documentary theater project about the Upper Big Branch mine disaster in West Virginia had just been closed because of the pandemic. So I feel like I only have you on here to talk about bad news, which I, I feel, <laughs> feel terrible about. Next time, it'll be only, only, only good stuff. But can you talk a little bit about what's going on with you right now? Because you, you recently got a diagnosis and, and we're going to talk about that and how it affects the creative process and the work we do. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a hyphenate. I'm an actor, writer, director. I don't produce. My wife is the producer in the family. You know her. She's really good at that. And at the end of the pandemic, my TV show got canceled halfway through the pandemic. And then uh, my wife and I were just writing. And, you know, I had this brain aneurysm, but that kicked my ass. But I totally survived and, and am in better shape than I was before. I think I'm sharper than I was before, actually. I think I cleared something out. But recently, in the midst of the strike, we were shooting a film in Minnesota, which we can get to later. And I, I had a, an incident in my intestines, and there was a lot of blood. And I said to Jess, hey, we're, we're a week out here from being back in New York. And she said, we need to get you a colonoscopy. And I said, okay. And I came back, and it was a four-day stretch where I thought I was better off than I was each day. Each day got worse. <laughs> wow. On day one, they, they checked me out with a—that uh, was the colonoscopy, and they found a tumor in my colon, in my rectum, actually. So the first day they told me I had stage one cancer, I had a tumor— and then the second day, they told me that actually it wasn't stage one. It was it was a low stage two. And then they said it was a stage three. And then they took a CAT scan of my liver and they said, actually, it's spread. It's stage four. You've got stage four cancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was really uh, upsetting, as you can imagine. Yeah, of course. But you know, my prognosis is not a death sentence. I mean, it could be if I don't take care of myself, but, you know, as long as I stay strong and stick to the diet I'm supposed to stick to and don't eat any sugar and stay in touch with my friends and socialize and exercise and meditate and all the things they've got me doing, all the pills they've got me on, I'm hoping that within about eight weeks we'll come out of this and then I'll then I'll have some surgery and then it'll be over. Oh, wow. So your treatment regimen right now, you're on a bunch of medication. There's specific dietary stuff. Yeah, well, I'm a vegan now. I mean, who knew? You know, you know, right. do you know the do you know the joke? No. How can you tell if somebody's a vegan? How? They'll tell you. <laughs> That's great. Amazing. <laughs> That's very true. So I've had to change my whole uh, lifestyle in terms of how I how I operate in the world as a living, breathing human being. In terms of how I work, it's been interesting because people think, oh, well, you've got cancer, you can't work. And that's just not true at all. You know, I'm lucky I don't, I didn't take the kind of chemo that, and chemo for me means going in and, and you know, getting a, an IV bag of every three weeks and then in the interim taking a lot of pills. And so, you know, for me, um, it's actually been kind of cool. Like we'd shot a film in Minnesota and so we were working editing it. So I got up every day and took my pills and sat down in the co-editor's chair and, or the, you know, he's the, he's the captain, I'm the ensign, I guess, yeah. and got to edit our film. And it was really great because like during the course of the film, I had no idea I was sick and I was operating fine. 
So if I can operate, you know, an act with stage four cancer in Minneapolis, I can do it in New York or Los Angeles. It's not that big a deal for me, fortunately. Wow. wow. I'm the exception, not the rule. Right, right. And one of the reasons why we wanted to talk today is, of course, all of this is very expensive. You yeah. currently have health insurance, if I remember correctly, right? Well, it's funky because I belong to three, three unions and a guild. And, right. you know, last year I didn't qualify for the Screen Actors Guild because my residuals took a plunge. I've got some numbers here, but the numbers look really, really boring. But they've progressively gone down. My residuals went down in 2021 from above $40,000 a year to under $24,000 a year. And that's the first time in 35 years that's ever happened. Got it. And so for people who listen to this show probably hear the term residuals thrown around a lot. Can you just mm -hmm. explain what residuals are and why they're so important to the working middle class actor? Well, residuals are basically like a royalty. If you write a book, you um, sell so many copies of the book, you get a royalty. And, you know, if my image is going to appear on a show hundreds of times, a residual in the classical network model is something that they rerun it. I get the same amount that I did when I worked on it. And then over time, it'll be cut in half and cut down and cut down and cut down. I mean, I'm still getting residuals from a Bruce Willis movie I did 35 years ago. They're all for like $1.50. Right. It's like when you get a royalty statement as a writer for $2, which does happen right. to people, you know. Right. I've actually had checks sent to me that it would have cost them less <laughs> for the stamp. <laughs> You right. know, yeah, I hope I'm making sense, but the the stamp was more expensive than the residual. <laughs> right. And 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 often with the residual model, which we should say the whole industry is built traditionally off of this model, right? Not the whole industry, but actors, directors, producers, yeah. Right, right. I just mean that like the economics of this model for the people who work in the, is is partly based on residuals. So you might not get as much money as people think you do up front, but right. You're, you're going to collect it as the thing broadcasts and gets rebroadcast and gets rebroadcast. And all of this has been thrown into utter chaos because of streaming, right? Right, exactly. So, so can you talk a little bit about how streaming has affected residuals? Well, that same $1.50 I made for something I did 35 years ago, I'm making that for a new show that I do on a streamer now. Wow. in residuals. I'll get that check and that'll be like right out of the gate and then I'll see another I'll see a declining checks for 49 cents, 35 cents. Sometimes they collate the check and there's $5 in there, you know. And it really in terms of the working class actorness of it, you know, only 7% of us qualify for insurance and only 14% of us make, I'm not sure how the numbers work, 7% get insurance and 14% of us are making over $80,000 a year. Right. And so your health insurance model is based off of residuals, right? right. And then the residuals have been completely disrupted by this new medium of streaming, which the old contract, we're not talking right. about the new one with the, with the strike, but the pre-strike contract sort of treated totally differently from TV, from normal television or whatever, right? Right. And I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of effects that happen with that. I mean, I lost my health insurance. You know, for some people, it means that they can't do that play that they really wish they could do because the residuals su support 
our ability also to do theater. Right. Not to mention the blow to the ego. I mean, it, you feel terrible if you don't make your residuals. You feel just awful. And there's people with families bigger than mine that count on that $26,400 a year or whatever you're supposed to make to have insurance for their entire family. And, you know, I know a lot of people who have dropped out because of this. And, you know, with streaming, a show can get millions and millions and millions of watches. And my belief is that if a network does well and a show does well and an actor is hired for that show, that all boats rise together, like right. we've all put in our best work. A secondary effect of that is that people do their best work when they're well compensated. And, you know, lately, the way the economy has gone, actors are gig workers now in this mm -hmm. economy. You know, everybody I know who acts, who's middle class, has a side hustle. Fortunately, my side hustles are writing and directing, <laughs> which is complicated, too, because those are two different unions, so my residuals don't pool. Right. So it created quite a few problems for people and the deep, deep drop affected some very well-known names like people that you know and see on TV all the time. It affected a lot of people. They lost their insurance this, this past couple of years. Wow. And then on top of that, of course, you've been on strike, both as a writer and as an actor. Yeah, I hold I held two signs. <laughs> right. Yes, of course, of course. And how does that affect this whole calculus in terms of, you know, getting insured and how much money you make in a year because people are making much less money this year in general anyway right well i mean acting is awesome because when you show up for a play or a film or whatever all the hard work has been done before you've gotten there like the real hard work of putting it together and deciding what the shots are going to be and getting it financed and stuff like that that's all in place with writing, depending on what kind of writing you do, if you're in a writer's room, you're set. You get your insurance, you get your you get your money, you probably get an episode or two to write for the season, and that's all good. But most writing takes place for free. Like most of my writing that I do, I can pitch something to people, but inevitably they're gonna they're gonna say, Well, is there a script? So most of the writing I do is like ahead of time in anticipation of being able to answer that question with why sure there's a script and it's really well written. I know the writer very well. He's uh, very, yes. he's very skilled. <laughs> and very handsome. So if you didn't get your health insurance through SAG, where were you getting your health insurance to cover this treatment? Are you currently without insurance? No, I got lucky. I happened to be on Broadway for the first time. Again, while I had stage four cancer, I didn't know I was sick. I was on Broadway in a play called The Collaboration with Paul Bettany. And so that plus a couple of workshops got me my equity insurance for The Gap. And then we've had to Cobra. And now we're going to qualify again for SAG. But yeah, so so I, I, I bridged the gap with COBRA, which is expensive. Yes, yes. As anyone who's ever been unemployed knows, COBRA costs an insane amount of money. Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of thousand dollars a month, you know, which is a lot. Uh, you know, New York is expensive to live in, and Los Angeles is, is expensive to live in until the model of how we make films change. These are kind of the two best places for me to be in order to procure work. And so, you know, when you're 
average Joe in Ohio who works in an office says, well, they're making, you know, $100,000 a year over there. Well, it's not really that amount of money that you're making because first you pay your agent, that's 10, so that's $90,000. Then you pay your manager, that's another 10, so that's $80,000. Then you pay your uh, business manager and your lawyer, that's another 10, so you're talking about walking away from the table before taxes with uh, $70,000. And then that might be your, your money for the whole year. You know, like you don't know Mm -hmm. if you're going to get another job after that. And it's very volatile market. Things right now are getting canceled and picked up at an incredible rate. I know one of the things that you all are kind of staring down the barrel of is is that there's there's a chance, of course, you know, after your surgery and, you know, after all of this is taken care of, Mm -hmm. but it might be a long time before you guys find work again because of the aforementioned volatility of the market. Right. Right. I think I saw on the GoFundMe that that was circulating to, to help you all out. I mean, it's potentially like. 300 grand in costs that you might have to cover, right? I mean, you know, for at least the time during the surgery, I mean, I'm in the workforce now, Mm -hmm. but the auditions are not coming quite yet. And auditions for a lot of things, the market for auditions won't be up for quite a while. It could, it might not happen until January, February, and my insurance may lapse. So I don't blame anybody for that, except for the producers who don't want to, who don't want us to have a small piece of the pie. If I have to go Cobra again, we're looking at $2,000 a month for that. We're looking at me being out of the workforce. You know, we're looking at praying that one of our writing jobs gets picked up. So maybe we get Screen Actors Guild insurance, but, and there's new rules that govern how partners work. So both of the partners can get insurance now. It wasn't like that before. And I think all my information is accurate. People can like, you know, cat call me or check up on me or yell at me on Instagram if I get something if I get something wrong here. Or not. They could just leave you alone. Yeah, but I mean there's like small things lead up. It's like, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. You know, today I went in to get uh the uh the acupuncture that they were recommended that I get. And, you know, it cost a hundred dollars to park our car. And, you know, on top of that, I got, you know, a mortgage to pay and there's one of us out of the workforce for at least eight, nine, 10 weeks once I have the surgery. Yeah. How are you feeling today? Like, what is your day to day like physically or mentally? Oh, well, mentally, mentally is tough because I have thoughts creep in like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Right. You know, then mentally I have thoughts creep in like I can totally beat this. And I know if I was a better meditator, I'd probably have a little more control over over those things. But mentally, it's a strain on my family, too. You know, I've got a therapist. My daughter's got a therapist. So we all talk to our various therapists and stuff like that. But it's a strain on my family. My daughter's holding me much closer to her. And she says she's not afraid, but I can tell some days that she really is, you know, of losing me. You know, no kid should lose their dad at that at that young an age. You know, my mom lost her dad at that age, and I know the effect it had on her, and I don't want that to happen to my daughter. My wife is amazing and a producer and can multitask. She's like one of those plate spinners you used to see on TV, you know, just she can right. spin 100 plates at once. But if one of them crashes, a lot of them crash, and... She wants to talk to her best friend about what's going on with her husband, but I'm her best friend. (laughs) Right. And so it's really hard to complain about how tough it was dealing with Eric Jensen today when actually the person she would normally talk to about that is me. Right. So um, it's a strain on her as well. But, you know, we're, we're tough, you know. 
We got through a brain aneurysm. It gave me a brand new outlook on life. You know, I'm slowly coming around to the idea that this chemotherapy stuff that I'm doing and everything is like just another challenge. I mean, in terms of how I feel from the chemo, chemo is super interesting. If I were as a writer, if I were to just like flat out write a scene in a chemo ward, I would make it very somber and very quiet and, mm -hmm. you know, have the occasional doctor walk by the, the station where the people are getting their chemo. It's not. It's like the New York subway. It's like there's people coming in and out, people having loud conversations, people watching TV, people listening to music. Right. It's very familial, too, because, like, people will come in and, and visit the person who's getting the chemo in order to support them. So, you know, I had one family next to me. I think they were from Jordan. I can't quite remember, but they had, like... 10 uncles and aunts come in to visit. <laughs> when I've sat with friends who are doing chemo, you like watch Star Trek The Next Generation or, you know, yeah, like whatever exactly. is the comfort viewing for that person. You just hang out and tell jokes and reminisce. And, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it does not feel that somber. No. There's maybe like an echoing grand piano in the score. Yeah. And a cello. <laughs> right? Yeah, or it's like that eyes wide shut score with the one yeah, note. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, with the one note. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm very fortunate. Like a lot of people have rallied for me and got a lot of good friends who are coming out often to my house to hang out with me. And, you know, and I've got auditions too, you know, uh, right. those are, like I said, those are starting to come in and I've got my writing and we're still finishing the editing on the film. So there's a lot for me to do to keep me occupied. And that's the hardest thing is getting up out of bed, dragging my butt out of bed and getting over the effects the chemo are having on me in order to stay occupied. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Eric Jensen. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we offer solutions to creative challenges. So please tell us what you're struggling with and let us help you. Drop us a line at workingatslate.com you can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Eric Jensen. So one of the things you were talking about is you do therapy, you meditate. You know, like we all face some different level of like, oh, vey, <laughs> what's going right. on today? So I'm just curious. <laughs> Yours is much, much, much more intense. I'm not trying to minimize it, but I'm just wondering what some of those strategies are for like, I've got this work to do. I've got this creative work that I really care about. How do I stay creative and alive to the moment and open and right. generous, you know, in those moments? Because the reason why I ask this is because, you know, my experience of you, I should say to our listeners, you know, I've known Eric for like 20 years now. My, my experience of Eric, you know, you're an incredible incredibly generous, open, kind, friendly Thank dude, you. you know, both interpersonally and artistically. And so how do you maintain that in the midst of all the other shit you're going through, I guess is my question. Well, I mean, I make a lot of lists and I winnow them down and I see what's possible and what isn't. Like on my list last week was my friends wanted to make a short film with me, a short horror comedy. I've done some horror movies that are funny, but not on purpose. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've done some comedy, but I had never done the two together. And so that seemed like an interesting challenge. So I went up for three days and, and filmed a horror comedy with them. So that was the first thing on my, my list that week. And it was a different way of shooting for me. Usually I'm an actor who's kind of at the ready. I would say that I am method while I'm on the set that I do my best to stay in character and keep the emotional state working in me very quietly, not not to impinge upon others at all. And I'm doing my as-ifs, you know, or substitutions, some people call them, you know, all about right. this stuff. Right, but our listeners might not. So can you explain uh, as-ifs and substitution? Well, as-ifs is like, oh, you know, what if I got a call that my wife was in a terrible car accident? How would that feel? That's one thing. I may not have experienced something like my wife being in a terrible car accident, but I sure know what the feeling was like when my daughter got rushed to the hospital with pneumonia a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I would use that physicality of that feeling to bring up the emotional state in myself in order to bring it to the scene. And the director doesn't need to know I'm doing that. You know, my character's not thinking about my daughter. My character's thinking about something terrible that happened to his wife. Right. That's kind of, in a nutshell, how, the, how a substitution works. And we do substitutions all the time. When we watch movies and you see a, a first kiss, we all remember our first kiss. We have, we have substitutions happen just in reverse. Mine was at a bus stop. Really? Yeah. My first kiss was after a Sadie Hawkins dance. She asked me to the dance. Whoa. She, she said, I'm going to kiss you now. And she did. And she'd obviously kissed somebody before because I hadn't. And then she dumped me two days later. Damn. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. That's such good material. I know. I know. I wish I was a comedian. I would put it together into something. Maybe I'll put it in the movie. <laughs> so that's how a substitution works. And so... You know, now God has granted me the ultimate life and death substitution if I ever need to play a character who's, you know, going to die or knows, there's, knows they're going to die or is almost going to die or has to save their own life. I know all of those feelings uh, are roiled up in me from the experience that I'm having with my real life cancer. Actors are weird. They think of those things as blessings sometimes. I mean, it's all, it's, I, mean, it's all I got to do with it, you know? Right. I really can't sit around and wait to shake off the mortal coil. I can't sit around and, and, and curse the gods or anything like that. I have to do something with it. Mm. You are currently working on editing a film. Yes. You did not know you were sick as you were shooting it. No. Right? Uh, and no. so can you tell us a bit about this movie you're working on right now? Yeah, I'll get into the personal bit with it too. I was, am estranged from a couple of my family members in my real family. That's by choice, you know. It's uh, unfortunate, and I'm really sad about it. But you know, we had to draw a boundary somewhere, and so we did, as a family. And so it's sort of my fantasy of what would happen if I had been estranged from my entire family, not just a couple people, but my entire family for over a decade and came back to Minnesota with my daughter who had never met them before. The conceit of the movie is, in fact, not only have I been estranged from my family by choice, I'm a widowed dad of a 13-year-old girl. I've told that 13-year-old girl that her grandparents are dead in order to avoid having to get the myriad of questions that come. And of course, about eight minutes into the film, it's revealed that that was a lie and she's totally pissed at me. 
And so um, we had the good fortune, I had the good fortune to work with my wife and I co-directing together. I acted in it, it's the first time I've acted in something I've co-directed. My daughter plays a little lead 13-year-old character in it, and you'd think, oh God, they're making a movie with their kid. That could go either of two ways, and it went the good way. <laughs> she's really talented, and she's really on point, and she's a, a sponge. She can learn her lines and learn a technique for doing something. She learned stuff on that set in five weeks that it took me years to learn mm. working on TV, uh, TV movies and stuff like that. And then we were fortunate to have uh, Amy Madigan from Field of Dreams. People remember right. her from that. Amy came on board because she really liked the script and she was just perfect, you know, and she came in prepared, on fire, ready to go. And she raised the bar for the whole cast and crew. We were like, oh, we should do that. <laughs> we should do what she's doing. Well, first of all, you're being directed by your wife, I assume. Right. You yes. know, right, right. And then also the two of you are collaborating as directing and you're directing your own child. Yes. I mean, that, that just seems like a fun but intense thing to have to navigate. Can you talk a bit about how you all did that? Frankly, I'm really glad we got Amy because that is not a movie I would sign on for. <laughs> right. You wouldn't either because you understand the potential pitfalls, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, it's a little bit like having Thanksgiving dinner every day of the week. <laughs> I think that if I were to describe it, I think that each day called for different things. There's a first kiss scene in the movie, which coincidentally happened to be my daughter's first kiss. And she and the uh, person that she was kissing, neither of them had kissed anybody before. So first thing was first, I was banned from set. She didn't want me there. She didn't even want me in a monitor. So I went up to the house and had several cups of coffee while I waited for this scene to be done. But finally, it was taking so long, I wandered down to the lake and... I watched the monitor for a second like I wasn't supposed to. And they do the scene, and then each time they got close to the kiss, these two teenagers would break out into peals of laughter. I mean, of course. if we hadn't been on the clock, it would have been the most hilarious thing in the world, you know? But like the crew was like, are we going to get overtime? <laughs> you know? And right. so finally, Jessica went and said, guys, you know, everybody's got families to go home to and stuff like that. You know, just press your lips together and do it. And it's actually one of the best scenes in the film because they have such a connection. There's uh, wonderful music that I hope we can afford uh, to stay in the film that's playing there. A Phoebe Bridger song that I really just love. But yeah, so, you know, there are days like that. And then there were the days where I wasn't acting on set and both Jessica and I were needed. And those were days where we consulted together a lot. Mm -hmm. On another day, you know, we would be behind the camera. I mostly, what, what I did before the shoot in pre-production is me and the DP made storyboards for every scene. And we had the storyboards printed up on a big panel. And so we knew what the shots were that we needed to get. So I could go up to the storyboard and point to Jess, look, it needs to be like this. She prefers talking to the actors. I like that too, especially if I'm helping with a technical issue or dealing with a new actor who hasn't learned something before. We had a new actor on set who was wonderful, who did a great job, uh, as good as Sadie. But, you know, she'd never had to keep track of something like continuity before or where your right. wine glass goes every scene and stuff like that. So I was happy to be able to, you know, whisper words of encouragement without getting Jess being pulled away from a big problem to deal with a, a, a small issue, you know. 
So, you know, all in all, it juggled pretty well. Occasionally, as I'd have to go up to Jessica and say, okay, I'm an actor now, and I'm asking my director a question. And she'd be like, okay, those are the hats we're wearing right now. And I'd say, yeah, this thing doesn't quite feel comfortable because in the script earlier, there was this thing. And she'd go, oh, crap, I never thought of that. Yeah, we have to adjust it a little bit. And then sometimes I would just say something as a director to her without really saying that I was putting the director hat on. And that's the only points where we got into a little bit of a kerfuffle because, you know, she was trying to deal with a big problem over here. And maybe what I was dealing with was not that big a problem. But all in all, I mean, like we've been working together 22 years and we love it. We love doing it. One final thing I wanted to kind of ask you about is you've been incredibly public about your diagnosis, right? I mean, it, yeah. it was written up in deadlines. You're here doing this interview. You have the GoFundMe and everything like that. I'm curious about that decision because lots of people hide this sort of stuff when it's going on with them or whatever. Mm -hmm, and also right. curious about what the, the effect of that has been because you're dealing with people every day who now know this very serious thing that's going on with you and, you know, you're auditioning for them or you're yeah, talking yeah. to your agents or, you know, or your friends or, or whatever it is. So I'm just sort of curious about, about what it's been like for you since going so public with this a few weeks ago. I mean, look, some people think I'm oversharing, I think. But I can't help but be but honest about what's going on with me. I want people, when I walk into a room, to know what's going on with me. Not so I get treated special or anything like that, but so that they know the kind of state that I'm bringing to the table and that I'm cool and balanced and, and easy about it, even though it's scary. I mean, this kind of diagnosis is scary. You don't, you don't like to think that you have you know stage four cancer. But, you know, the interesting thing is people in my community, people who know me, that's the first ring out. Those people have been so phenomenally generous with their time and a lot of them with their money. I suspect who the anonymous donors are. You know, when somebody donates a lot of money, they do it anonymous. I suspect I know who those people are from my life, but I don't want to call and ask them because they'd, they'd be embarrassed or whatever. And by the way, I just want to make it clear, I wish I'd never had to do a GoFundMe at all. Like, if there was any way for us to get through this without that, we, right. we, would, we would do that. You know, that, that money should be for people who really need it, but it turns out I'm one of those people, so. Yeah, it would, it would also be amazing if we lived in a country that didn't have for-profit healthcare where you have to do this crazy shit just to get insured. Well, I could go off on that for many hours, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I won't waste your time on that. But, you know, so the, then there's a second circle out is friends that I haven't talked to in a long time who throw in 20 or 25 bucks. And a letter, I got this letter from uh, this woman named uh, Suzanne Gifford from high school who I did all the high school plays with and we were a perfect match. We had great chemistry and we were great friends in high school. We were theater kids, you know. And I haven't talked to her since 1988. She sent me this wonderful note via GoFundMe, and, and now I think we're going to strike up a friendship and be friends again, which I really like. I really like that that's happening. So this brings a bunch of blessings with it. Then there's the other circle out, which is the, the circle of fans and stuff that have seen me on Walking Dead or Mr. Robot. That's amazing support, amazingly supportive community. I don't know a lot of them personally, but we've interacted over the internet over the years. But then there's the other circle out, which are the naysayers and the commentators. Personally, I don't care what somebody's 
state of mind is about vaccines. I have a belief for myself that we're all in this together and we should all be vaccinated to protect each other. But there's this whole cadre of people who are out there speaking about my case like I brought this on myself. And the fact that I got the vaccine gave me cancer when that's not a fact at all. I mean, cancer runs in my family. You've been targeted by like the anti-vax people? I've been targeted by the anti-vax people. Oh my God, and it's been I have no horrible. idea. It's been horrible. Here I am trying to, you know, save my own life, raise a family, you know, get work, keep writing and stuff like that. And then, you know, part of the way that I, that we keep the GoFundMe going is I do little things on social media to just tell people where I'm at for the day or whatever. It's one of the ways I can pay people back and people seem to like when I do that. And so they've taken a, a quote that I made many years ago after I'd written this play with Jessica called, called The Line with a First Responders during COVID in New York City, you know, EMTs and doctors, nurses, that kind of thing. I made a quote in the context of making that, and they've taken that and totally put it out of proportion and colluded it with my cancer diagnosis and say, well, this guy Jeez. actually deserves to die. And he got the shot. He deserves it. And that's kind of their general attitude. And like, I first started schooling people in a Buddhist way about, hey, I got a daughter, like, don't put this stuff up online, please. Right. You know, she's having a hard time as it is. Unbeknownst to you, she Googles, she Googles me and you're messing with her head. And please think about that before you blame the victim of whatever. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of those people would find that in terms of not trusting, you know, government agencies and stuff like that, I share some turf with them. But I was astonished. I couldn't believe the, the lack of compassion. Mm -hmm. How do you block out the Internet trolls? Did you just no longer read your I mean, because you want to read comments and stuff to find people who you could say kind things to or whatever, but like... Well, yeah, I mean, as many, I mean, the internet trolls are a third of the comments that I get. The other two thirds are from survivors of people who've survived stage four cancer themselves or whatever, and are the words of encouragement. A lot of people want me to take Jesus into my heart. Well, <laughs> I tell them that Jesus is in my heart, but Buddha is too, and they walk as brothers. So, I've been in mosques and churches and temples and, you know, uh, Buddhist temples, and I just don't parse my friends that way. I don't break them right. up like that. So I don't break myself up like that either. I try to find wisdom in whatever I can that soothes me. The third of, of the people out there, I think were really, really hurt during the pandemic. Maybe they weren't mm -hmm. allowed to do certain things. Maybe they're still suffering a kind of trauma or something like that. Right. So yeah, so that's one of the extra things that I have to deal with by being public. But, you know, I'm an educated person and, and uh, I have a good heart. And so I forgive people right away and try not to hold on to it. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about what's going on with you and your creative process and your work. Uh, I always love talking to you. So thanks for coming by working this week. Thanks. Thanks again for having me, Isaac. I miss you and I want to hang out with you in person. Yeah, let's do it soon. Let's do it soon. And if you would like to look at and contribute to Eric's GoFundMe page, it's actually on the episode page for the show at slate.com slash working. Up next... Isaac and I will talk about the value of artists being candid about the finances of their lives and projects and about staying creative when life is tough. 
that was obviously serious, heavy, but also it's kind of amazing how clear Eric is and how he was just kind of able to talk about what he is realizing as he's going through this experience. Isaac, I want to thank you both for getting into some areas that people don't usually talk about. Partly, of course, it was about Eric's health, but also, and maybe especially, about money and how the way that the people who create the art that we enjoy and are entertained and inspired by get paid, that's just different from the vast majority of jobby jobs. Right now, obviously, it's extra important that Eric, who's facing massive healthcare costs, have health insurance, but it's something that everybody needs all the time. And this crazy quilt of coverage that Eric has because of his multi-hyphenate status and because of things like the way streaming services pay and the effect of the various strikes, it's daunting, but I also appreciated learning more about that. Forgive me for asking a question that has an enormous scope, but as a scholar of the performing arts, as someone who has worked in that world yourself, can you just talk about how the financial challenges that artists face affect the American cultural landscape? Oh, yes. You're right that that's a big question, but it's more that it's a big question because the issue is so huge that it is actually kind of invisible because it's just the given circumstances of the artistic life. And, and so we take it for granted. It's only once you start looking at what it's like in other countries that it starts to become clear that it just doesn't have to be like this. I'll yeah. give you an example. You live in the UK, which has by Western European standards, a pathetic and parsimonious welfare state, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that it even has has one is really important. Everyone has free health care via the NHS. So you are not tied to a job. You are not tied to making enough income to go on the Obamacare exchanges, which have taken the pressure off a little bit, but not enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we should say, you know, pre-Thatcher, there was a robust dole. It is mm -hmm. less robust now, but the dole is a real thing. That made a huge difference for artists there. And for the culture, you know, it's not just about artists making a living, but if you look at the kind of golden age of incredible art in almost every field that was coming out of the UK, particularly in the late 70s, that's because in between work, all those artists would go on the dole and they didn't have to worry about starving to death, you yeah. know? Yeah. And we get everything from Carol Churchill, the greatest living English language playwright, to the factory record scene and everything else, you know, the, the Smiths or whatever. That all comes out of that ability to vacillate between those two things. Can't do that here. You've never been able to do that here. Here, you really do have to scramble to create a stable base of income. And that has only gotten worse over time as our welfare state has gotten worse, you know, beginning with, well, really, I mean, Bill Clinton is, is sort of part of the origin of this problem. Health insurance remains a really serious problem. The streaming stuff and the online world has been wonderful in many ways, but it has actually removed a lot of the income that artists get off royalties, which, you know, our whole model for artists is built on them getting income through royalties and piracy has become so easy now. Yes. And and streaming is so unremunerative that a whole income base has just been removed. So everything's a lot more precarious. You know, it is really, really challenging. You look at someone like Eric, who's been working in television, you know, most of his adult life, he's been filming TV shows off and on. That's someone who should be making a stable income off residuals. And he just isn't anymore. You know, as, as he said in the interview, you know, one year it dropped from 
above 40 grand a year to under 25 grand a year. I mean, that's a huge pay cut to just have ra- to randomly happen as a result of the streaming revolution. Yeah. And for someone who's had such a successful career to even quote the high of those numbers, that is not what I would have expected for someone like that. You know, I recently had lunch with a friend who is in the final couple seasons of a hit show that shall remain nameless. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, how is it to work on? He's like, oh, it's great. You know, there's a real camaraderie on set. The pay is terrible. And I was like, well, but it's a hit show, so you must make all this stuff off residuals. He's like, no, it never reruns. It just goes immediately to streaming. And so I make no money off of it at all. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, we just had a huge Writers mm-hmm. Guild mm-hmm. and SAG strike simultaneously is because of of those, those issues. And there are people who definitely feel like the SAG agreement that has recently been approved that ended the strike actually does not go far enough to fix it. Wow. There was something else that Eric said, almost as a throwaway line that really struck me. He said, you know, that he hopes they can afford to use a Phoebe Bridger song in the movie they're making because it's perfect. But as an independent production company and as an independent creator for that matter, there are just so many expenses that you have to cover. Oh, my God. (laughs) You uh, ain't just whistling Dixie, as they used to say, right? (laughs) Being an independent creator, a family business in many ways, there's all sorts of wonderful things about that. You know, it's very nurturing. You have control over your schedule to some extent. You, you know, get to work with the people you love. There's all sorts of benefits to it. But it does entail lower pay and a much higher logistical hassle in part because you don't have a whole company behind you that has things like music clearances department, you know, and you're not part of a giant conglomeration that actually owns the rights to those musics and they all, they can just send a memo back and forth. You know what I mean? And so it's interesting because we are in this era of the needle drop, right? People talk about needle drops all the time, but what needle drops really are almost all the time is just corporate synergy. You know, like it, it is just like, Oh, Universal Studios owns Universal Music and that's how you get Sing and Sing too because they're just going through their back catalog and being like what of these songs can we use yeah Another thing that struck me listening to Eric's story was the range of techniques he has developed for staying creative when there are so many competing priorities and potential negative spirals I mean one of them was making a list of things he'd like to do things he needs to do and then figuring out what's possible in many ways that's a classic or the classic. It's the ultimate productivity technique when you get down to it. Isaac, what do you do when you're feeling overwhelmed? As we discussed on a recent episode of Working Overtime, the unpredictability of freelance work means that overwhelm is Mm. a pretty common emotion for a lot of independent artists. You know what? I'm going to be a little humble here for once in my goddamn life. (laughs) I used to think I was really good at this to some extent. And I, you know, I've given a lot of advice on this particular front in person and on this show. I have recently gone through a long period of feeling totally overwhelmed, losing track of things Mm. pretty regularly. And so I just feel like I'm starting to get things back under control now. Now I will say, I think some of that was exacerbated by recently having had COVID. I had COVID in August and I while I'm not like big brain fog, long COVID or whatever, I do feel like I'm not quite as mentally sharp and as good at holding everything in my head as I used to be. I'm like, like 3% worse or whatever. But when you're really overwhelmed, 3% worse is enough to like for things to get really off the rails, especially when your process used to involve, you know, like keeping a lot of it up here in your head, you know, you have to learn a new process and that's what I've got to do now. And I think the one thing looking back that I really could have done better is, you know, 
set aside time every week in a blocking the calendar off kind of way to just project manage, right? To just be like, maybe it's Thursdays after our recording session, right? That's my project management time. Checklists for the week ahead, thinking through the calendar, doing real block scheduling, et cetera. The thing that really defeated me recently is I'm in heavy interview time for the book. And so I'm beholden to other people's schedules. Like, you know, if it's an important source who's 83 years old and they're like, I can talk at 10 a.m. on Thursday, you're, you're I'm going to clear everything for that. And so figuring out how to manage that with everything else I've got going on is a real challenge that I'll be honest, I'm still struggling with. Well, I just want to encourage you not to beat yourself up about that, Isaac, because I think everybody struggles with this. And you know, just because you've given advice doesn't mean you have to do it perfectly. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that people in the, don't hit me, productivity space say a lot dun, is, dun, dun. <laughs> is, is this concept of maker time and manager time, that you have to give over some of your schedule, as you say, to, to doing those kind of management tasks. But then, as you say, sometimes you're not in control. In fact, even yeah. when you are freelance, you are pretty much never have full control over when you do things because you're always collaborating with someone. It might be, right. you know, an interview subject or it might just be the people you, you know, record a podcast with. So this is just a really hard thing. And No, I, I agree. And I don't mean to beat myself up so much as to just remind our listeners that, you know, even though we talk a lot about this stuff and even though particularly June is the great <laughs> expert of, of logistically managing your creative career, you know, we struggle with it too. We, we have stuff that we're not good at or we fall behind and miss emails and everything like that. All that stuff happens to, to us too. The movie that Eric is completing was yet another all-family effort, this time including their daughter Sadie, who acted in it. I find his technique of clearly stating what role you're inhabiting as you ask a question or give a direction, the sort of director, I am asking this question as an actor, or yeah. Sadie, my daughter, I am giving you, an actor, this note in my role as the co-director. Very appealing. It makes perfect sense in in the quite specific situation Eric was describing. But I wonder if you have ever done something similar in a project when collaborating with friends or family members or just generally. Yeah, I mean, I think being really explicit about the point of view you're speaking from in a collaboration is so important. It mm. becomes more important in when you're wearing a bunch of different hats, when you're a writer and a director and an actor. And it becomes another degree of importance when you have a personal relationship you're trying to safeguard amidst that collaboration because all collaborations involve conflict. It's not always (laughs) going to be wonderful. You know, it's, it's doing that's really important. So I would say like, I tend to form friendships with people I work with. That's a very frequent occurrence with me and it's gotten me in trouble in the past. You know, I mean, sometimes it's hurt those relationships or I've had to stop working with people to protect the friendship or, you know, whatever it is, definitely. And so I do think being really clear about which hat you're wearing and why is important. It's one of the places in your life where compartmentalization is, is actually really healthy. In my current life, you know, you and I are co-workers and we're also friends. Indeed, We don't have a lot of friendship drama, so I'm not like worried about (laughs) it. But, you know, we, you know, we have stuff with this show we have to deal with. The clearest example for me over the course of my writing career, and I think you'll get a kick out of this, June, is Dan Quice at Slate. You know, Dan is my editor sometimes. He's been my editor for like 12 years. He's a close friend. We have written a book together. The World Only Spins Forward, available wherever you get your books. And (laughs) one thing that I 
I have found really helpful about that relationship is, you know, Dan has a slate.com address and mm-hmm. he has a personal email address. And I have had times where I have written him about a piece at the slate.com email address and then either texted him or written him at his personal email address within five minutes about some like, hey, do you want to get lunch when I'm in D.C. next week or whatever it is? Yeah. And I actually think that's been really, really helpful. All right, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you get ad-free podcasts, extra episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you so much to Eric Jensen for being our guest this week. This week's episode was produced by Kevin Bendis. Our series producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks to both of them for all of their incredible work. We'll be back next week with a second chance to hear my interview with Liz Stokes and Jonathan Pierce of the incredible New Zealand power pop band, The Beths. Until then, get back to work. 